I didn't know the podcast was. Hold on, I got to turn this down. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to, hold on, I got to turn this down. (laughs) Okay. Hello, everybody, and welcome to uh, On the Blood Trail. My name is Tyler. I'm the host of the podcast. Uh, For those of you that have listened before, you know who I am. You've heard some of my stories. And uh, you know the guest that I have on the podcast today. Uh, We'll get to that in just a second here. Uh, We got just under two weeks until Alberta hunting season is like blown wide open. Uh, It's actually only one week until some zones are already open for uh, archery. And that actually also includes the sheep opener, which is with a rifle. And uh, that's only one week away. and then the rest of it, just under two weeks. It's exciting getting out there, getting the reps in, uh, double, triple, quadruple checking all of our gear. It's exciting. I'm excited. Um, our guest on the podcast today, I know he's got to be excited. Uh, my brother, Ryan, how you doing? Not too bad, bro. How are you doing tonight? Not too bad. It's uh, It's been a little bit. I, you know, it's funny, hey, because I think I've done – this will be podcast number two since we talked last and that was forever ago. Yeah. And, uh, so we're going to have to do this more often. We'll have to maybe start a Slager Outdoors podcast or something too. Yeah, I'm thinking so. We talk enough. We might as well record a few of the conversations. Yeah, for sure. So uh, how excited are you for upcoming hunting season? Man, it's just like a kid in the candy shop. I don't you know, you don't know what to pick out or you don't know where to look. Um couldn't be any more ecstatic about it we got our new white ventum 30s that we both got um i don't know i'm just i'm still got some some really promising looking spots this year we'll get into a little bit later in the podcast here and uh, just stoked you took my next question right away from me i was going to bring up the new bows um what else are you switching up for uh your setup this year huh to be honest i actually don't think really anything maybe next to nothing new boots yeah <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah just for all you uh all you under armor lovers i'm wearing some cameron haynes boots keep hammering <laughs> yeah exactly you know it's funny i put on those boots and i thought i don't know i don't know if like cameron haynes's athletic spirit just came on me i just wanted to start running <laughs> just to get on the closest road just start booking it cut the sleeves off your shirt and just go <laughs> That's uh, all right. I don't mind a lot of what he does. He does a lot of bringing the, the hunting community together, but uh, a little bit more showy than what I'm used to for sure. Yeah, um, no, I don't mind his stuff. I just, it cracked me up, man. <laughs> no, I got the boots. I didn't even know who he was, to be honest, but uh, I, I YouTubed it after and I realized pretty quick. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, what are the plans for this season? Uh, hi. You know, you know me pretty well. Um, I'm sure the listeners are going to start to learn this about me quite a bit too. Um, I'm a diehard bow hunter. You can't keep me away from, you know, archery season, even in the rifle season, man. I still carry my compound bow into the stand every night. It's the only way that you're going to get animals continuously and successfully with your bow is by as being so dedicated and so persistent with it that basically you have to spend like double the time with your bow than you ever would with a gun, if not triple. And I've always known you to be the, the person that's done that ever since you started hunting. But 
like last year, I would say was a, a pivotal transition point where you really solidified that I want to be a bow hunter all the time over being a rifle hunter. You know, it's actually funny about that is I maybe would have quit this year, but I actually got some success last year doing it. So it's probably all, you know, it's all fine and dandy now, but if I look back at it from last year, man, if I didn't get some success, it would have been really hard to stick with it again this year. I mean, I'm sure I would have, but maybe not to the same degree. Well, you had some extreme success last year based on, I think, anybody's standards, especially for hunting one state or province on its own. Even, you know, you did shoot a deer in Arizona. So, I mean, that kind of has continued success. Unless you want to, well, that was before Christmas or after Christmas? That was just after. That was before the new year, though. Still still 2020 season. So, that was pretty awesome yep. that you got to cap off an excellent archery season with a, a southern buck. Man, I remember we all go to the watering hole and everyone's sitting there like, what kind of buck do, do I want? They're all thinking, oh, I want a four by four. I want this or that. And I'm just like, man, if it's got more than one point on one side, I'm killing it. You're ready to shoot an Arizona 11 pointer. Exactly. I was, well, that was just it. Like, I didn't know what kind of time I had. I didn't know how many opportunities I was going to be given. So I wasn't going to pass up or blow any opportunities that I got. And, you know, I was rewarded with that with a really nice four corn coos. Now, you did slip up once in the 2020 season, and I mentioned this on the last podcast, and I also said that I would ask you this story so that the listeners could hear it from you, uh, but your mule deer. Now, I know you sat a few times. I sat with you and watched you miss a really nice buck. You probably wouldn't have scored super high, but with a bow in the frigid temperatures, that would have been an extreme trophy, uh, but yeah. then you did end up shooting one with a gun. Yeah, yeah, that's the truth. Um when we sat that day with the one with the bow that I missed, you remember we were walking into the stand and I look over to my, my left and like 70 yards in the trees, there's the buck. He's just standing there in the trees, watching us walk into the tree stand. And I'm just like, well, I can't shoot him here. He's too far in the brush and you're not going to get him to come any closer and you're not going to get any closer. So we just kept going right to the tree stand, which was about 200 yards further up. We get in the tree and I remember it, it's on camera. I was like, there's no way that buck's stupid enough to watch us walk all the way into our tree, then walk right to the base of it, right? He was well, love sure struck. Enough, sure enough, he did, man. That buck was so heavy in the rut, snort, wheezing, pawing the ground, posturing every four corn that come out, chasing the one doe that was in the entire valley. Yeah, no kidding, hey? But yeah, no, anyway, so when he did finally come out at 40 yards where I had a clear shooting lead, I come to full draw. It was what, minus 25, minus 30 that day? It was That's bad. in Celsius. It was, it was frigid temperatures, really difficult conditions. Um, at that time I was still shooting my Hoyt carbon spider. That bow had seen thousands upon thousands of arrows go through it. My QAD draw, it would be a QAD ultra rest, right? Yeah. It was so worn out, man, that when it came to full draw, it made the dirtiest click when it come to full, like max click. And I was like, Oh, I made so much noise. And the deer looked up and, couldn't get my anchor point because I had one of those like beaver style hats on. Yeah, I remember. And when you don't got your anchor point, man, in the video, you'll see you miss feet wide. Yeah, and the cold temperatures, it just complicates everything. It honestly makes when you are successful in that kind of cold temperature, it makes for, I don't know, the trophy just seems so much larger than it actually is. Well, it was one of those days too, where like the sun was beating down and the sun was warm and we had hiked all the way up the tree edge to get to our stand. And by the time you got up to the stand, you're so bundled up, you're sweating. And then you completely stop moving 
Mm-hmm. And then the sun goes down and you're just ice cold. And then of course, that's when all the animals come out and you're trying to make a, a perfect shot in these less than perfect conditions. And what most people don't realize is negative 30 in a tree stand may as well be negative 50. It's bad. In a ground blind, negative 30 is not that bad. You're sitting on a comfy little lawn chair. Maybe you got your little buddy heater in there. You're just, you're in a much cozier, warmer environment. You're blocked from the wind. I remember that particular night, the wind was howling right at your face and at the back of my neck. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how you were standing it because hitting the back of my neck, man, I was about ready to become a popsicle. But I remember when he finally came out, I was shaking so hard. Oh, and you remember how loud the tree stands were in negative 30? They had that, that sun had kind of melted them. They were still kind of freezing. Oh, it was just, it was, yeah. it was bad. Every time you make a move, it's just clink and clank. Yeah, I, I think we could describe it like on and on and on. There's just so many things that made it more difficult, including the fact that like in that temperature, you can't even barely take out your phone, check the time, send a text to somebody about anything because your fingers don't work. Yeah, and if you do finally get a text off, you've lost half your battery on your phone. Exactly, and your fingers are numb. So then when a deer comes out and he's within bow range and you're trying to get your release all set up and, and get all this tiny little precision figured out, it's it's so much more difficult. It's difficult because I only shoot my bow generally when I have nothing on my head. Like that day, it was so cold, I wouldn't take my, my beaver toque kind of thing going on. I couldn't take it off. It was too cold. Mm-hmm. But I take my gloves off and usually my toque. And, you know, usually I'd, I'd just wear a hat. Like if you, you know, watch my whitetail video from last year, I shot in October. It was about negative five to negative 10 that set. And uh, I took, I had no gloves on and no toque on that night. So that night I was, I mean, I was, you know, locked and ready to go. But for some reason, man, I just, I couldn't do it that night with the meal deer. It was just, I was too cold. That cold air just set in and it overtook the, the situation. Uh, but yeah. now going into this new season, how sweet is that new Hoyt? I mean, it's, it really is a treat to shoot it. As long as I can keep myself under control, that Hoyt will do anything I need it to do. I know that. I, I trust fully in it. I have the confidence in that bow. I know my note shoots me by far. I, I've never yep. grouped so well with a bow. And uh, it's funny because I was talking to dad the other day and he's going on about how I probably only feel this way about the bow because it's brand new and I want to make myself feel like my new investment is paying off immediately. But the truth of of it is, is this thing is making me a better shot. Yeah. Yeah. No, hands down. Like I shot, I want to say probably about half a dozen rounds at 40 yards tonight. Um, And eventually I give up because the wasps were just trying to kill me. But uh, every group I took, man, even the groups that were not good and the ones I weren't focusing on, you could pretty much wrap your hand around any group, any given group. And at 40 yards, that can be extremely difficult to do, to discipline yourself, to to shoot consistently four to five inch diameter rounds. Definitely. Uh, But that new draw cycle, it's it's so nice. Like at at what point when you went to check them out, because I know you checked out the RX-3 a couple of years ago um, and you decided against it. Uh, But with this Ventum, at what point were you like, you know what, I got to have this? Well, you know, it, you get to a point, and I, I can't really explain what point it is when you feel like you, you've grown past your bow and you're ready to kind of just start afresh maybe because you feel like you're in a leg, maybe you had a, you know, a couple of mishaps in the tree or 
maybe you missed something or maybe you wounded something with it or whatever that may be where you get kind of pushed to look in the direction to a new bow. And I was kind of skeptical when I watched that first commercial that Hoyt put out for their RX-5 and Bentham 30, um, you know, the fancy one with all the techno music and where they explain all the new features that come on the new bows, you know, the new shortstop mm-hmm. stabilizer, you know, the sidebar mount and all these different things, the HBX cams. Um, and that video, I was kind of a little bit stumbled on it, but then I, I got to really thinking, I'm like, you know, maybe this is a year because I kind of was waiting for a year where Hoyt kind of put a lot of things together. It's like it's like buying a video game or a new vehicle or, or really anything. They're consecutive year after year after year, but not a lot of years do they actually come up with a whole lot of new, you know, a new new input in the product. A lot of years, sometimes it's just, just it's a new truck with, you know, different colored seats or a new truck with a, a new headlight. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like it's it's not like that truck's a complete new truck, but in this case, the Hoyt bow, it is pretty much a brand new Hoyt bow. Like it's it's not like the Hoyt bows that come before it, you know, the Helix and, and all those other, the Axios, all those bows are nothing compared to what the Ventum can do. The incredible dead in hand, I mean, it is dead in hand. When you let that arrow go, you feel not a lick of vibration in your hand after you let that arrow go. Nothing. I literally, my hand is so rock solid. That's why you say you shoot better with the bow because it doesn't move, man. Yeah, I noticed that too. It's it's one of those things where like, because I held on to the same carbon element for 10, 11 years and you're, you're waiting for the manufacturer to separate themselves from the rest of the competition. And I feel like this year Hoyt separated themselves from even their previous selves mm-hmm. and really stepped up their game on this new system. You know, and I, I shot a few different bows. I shot the, the Bowtech and, and, you know, the Matthews and, and a couple other different brands of bows and the RX five, of course, you, you know, to compare it to the Ventum 30. And like, I don't, I don't mind any of those brands. I don't mind any of them, but there's just something about the way that Hoyt has their bow put together, the way it feels in your hand, their handle grip, the draw cycle, the, you know, the smoothness of the dead in hand, everything about the Hoyt. It just, it's my, my kind of bow. I know a lot of guys that would rather go with something like the V3 with Matthews. That's a great bow. I'll show it. It's an awesome bow. But where it actually come down to really making the difference when I did decide to purchase the Ventum, I got to the archery lane and I, you know, he let me shoot quite a few rounds out of both the Ventum 30 and the V3. And I thought to myself, let, let's put a more, you know, a more situational application into the mix here. Let's, let's shoot from my knees. Mm-hmm. So I decided to start shooting from my knees and start to, you know, really slowly draw the bow, like inch by inch, man, so that you could feel that full draw cycle you're in, you know, you're imagining you're in a, a canola field with a monster mealy buck, 40 yards, whatever it may be. And this is the moment. If you screw this up because you can't draw slow enough or you can't get your bow pulled back in a, in a, you know, small, you know, movement fashion or whatever it may be. And that Hoy Ventum, man, it drew like butter. Mm-hmm. And that, that was, that was it for me. I was actually kind of on the fence. Do I choose the V3 or the Ventum? Because the, you know, the V3 is a fast, smooth bow as well, but it's not as dead in hand. And it is not as smooth to draw. See, and like, not just the draw cycle, but like going back to how you said it just, it felt better to you because you like the, the feel of the Hoyt bow. For anybody listening that would be on the fence about whether or not they should buy it, we, we do have a little bit of bias because we've always shot Hoyt. So we're used to the feel of a Hoyt. Not that we're like, oh my goodness, there's a new Hoyt, I have to have it because we, we're not like that. We've only bought a couple of different Hoyt bows 
you did try out all the other ones because you wanted to see what felt best in your hand. You're familiar mm -hmm. with the feel of the Hoyt, but when it all came down to it, the draw cycle and these other little things are really what pushed you to wanting to make the purchase. And uh, that's everybody else. The best advice would be for them to go and check everything out themselves as well. I agree. And Hoyt did a really good job with the H HBX cam. That really was, a, to me, the defining difference between every year that they've had up until now. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so the topic that we're going to talk about today on the podcast is uh, going to be stand placement. Now we're, we're going to primarily talk about deer hunting. We're going to mostly be on tree stands uh, or somehow getting elevated off the ground. And uh, having it being mostly about whitetails, you just checked the trail cameras today that we have set out for deer. Mm -hmm. And you're starting to see that the deer are starting, they're, they're getting a little bit more patternable. Not only that, but you're starting to see deer more and more out, out and about. Yeah, yeah, I know for sure. Um, actually, a really big thing that just changed in that southern zone that we hunt for whitetails. Um, it's kind of central southern Alberta is kind of where I would class it compared to where we hunt our other spots. Um, but in that zone, they actually just opened in the regulations to doe tags. Yeah, now, that, yeah, that used to be open 10 years ago. Now, I'm not saying the deer population isn't good enough to support doe tags. It is. But the problem is it's not good enough to support the entire population of the city of Edmonton, or the entire population of the city of Calgary all shooting two does at the same time in the same zone, because that's like one of the only zones that gets opened for, you know, dual doe tags. It's going to be, I'm for harvesting does. I'm for managing your herd, but I am really skeptical about how that doe season is going to shape the deer population over the next year or two. That's not to say slag road doors isn't going to put does on the ground. We will, but it's mm -hmm. all within the proper conservation amount. If we have an area where we know we can take does and it won't hurt our population in the long run, we're definitely going to do it. But also on that same note, after checking the cam, we have tons of does on it, of course. Mm -hmm. But lots of fawns, lots of the little ones with the spots on them. It's great to see the fawns coming up. Um, but actually, it was July 31st. We got the first picture of a mature buck since it had to be back in early June, man. Yeah, I think uh, I'd have to look back at the dates. I sent you the picture of that one buck that reappeared. And uh, mm -hmm. last I got pictures of him, I think was the last week of June or a week from the end of June. And then before that, I think it was two weeks. So probably, yeah, the start of June since we even had any good mature bucks on camera. You know, and it's, like, this is the craziest thing. And if you're listening to this right now, you got to really pay attention to how this deer is behaving. We've had pictures of him on this exact trail last year. We found his shed on this trail on the other side of a road this year. And this year he is, he's a very habitual buck. He runs the same, he lives in the same corridor. He's got the same group of trees. These aren't huge properties. These are 80, you know, max 160 acre properties. Lots of them with no bush on them. Mm -hmm. Like this buck's living in a really tight area with not a lot of bush or cover. And he's, he's pretty hard to find, but I think we're going to pattern him and, and lock him down this year. As long as we can keep our does in the area, which I think we can with the crops that are close by. I think we should have no problem. As long as we wait this buck out, we'll get him. Cause last year he was a beautiful five by five and he had a, a split on his G3 on, I believe it was his right side. And this mm -hmm. year he's a really nice five by five with a split on his G2 on his, it'll be his left side. Yeah. And so 
for summer, well, that would make him a five by six, of course, both years, but he's a mainframe five by five. Beautiful buck. I don't know what he would score. He's not astronomically bigger from last year either. No, like our gene pool is not great. And if you watch on Slayer Outdoors, um, we did a few live episodes there back in uh, early spring, kind of February, March, April area. You'll see that we bring up a lot of uh, deadheads, a lot of sheds of many bucks from that specific area. And the genetics just aren't there to always grow as big bucks. But I don't care who you are, or at least for my sake, if I see a 140 coming in, I'm about ready to fling every every arrow in my quiver. Absolutely. And, and we even found that one deadhead and uh, I passed on that buck a year prior with my bow, came to full draw. Mm-hmm. I, I put it right on the money and I was like, you know what? I just think he could use an extra year. And I ended up shooting a third buck that was in that bachelor group. I didn't even realize he was there yet when I was at full draw on this younger buck. And his genes from that year to the next year when we found a deadhead, it was pretty much the same deer. Yeah, I know. And it's incredible. It's actually this deer that we're talking about that we have pictures of. He's almost the same deer, except for that split. That one split, everything, every formation, the length of his tines, his frame, the way his beams curl. It's incredible how exactly the same he is, other than he changed his split from the right G3 to the left G2. Yeah. And it's much, much bigger this year, that split. Yeah. Yeah. No, he's an impressive deer. He might go 140 might go 145 i wouldn't say much more than that and maybe he might hit 150 we'll never you know don't know until you get him on the ground so then other than uh what we're getting on those cameras you're starting to see some pretty good sized bachelor groups of bucks as well yeah yeah so on our uh in the spot where i harvested my buck on camera last year in october man i i don't know if we it's hard because that area is extremely difficult to pattern the deer because the fields are considerably larger it can be miles by miles, man. And if you have a mile and a half of bush line, that's perfect for a white tail to come out of. Good luck pinpointing him down to 60 yards. But I have seen some bucks, man, that I don't know. Because on really, that hunt, really... you had a, a really nice buck, much bigger than the one you shot out in the field. Yeah. And he was just playing around with the does, doing what deer typically do. And then would you say it was all luck that the buck you shot came out and came right across you? Or would you say that you kind of expected some deer, whether it was that one or another one, to make that move. You know, whenever you call, the success rate of calling isn't terrible, but it's never that great, especially when you blind call. And I, I was sight calling that buck, but really I was blind calling the buck I called in. Mm-hmm. And I had seen the buck that I shot. He cruised about 300 yards parallel with me every single night for a couple nights. And so it, it wasn't that it was happen chance that that buck was there. He was cruising that line consistently every single night, but I hadn't spotted him because I was paying so much attention to this other good buck that was in the field that I didn't know he was actually out. And uh, it was actually Spencer running the camera that spotted this buck. And I remember I grunted at that other buck a few times, doe bleated at him once or twice. And he kind of took off across the field to go check out another patch of bush for does or, or scrapes or whatever he was, he was up to that night. And I remember I told Spencer, I'm like, let's just give it, we have, you know, about 10 minutes left of legal light. And I'm just like, let's just give it five more minutes to sit here real quietly. Not going to act like we're getting down enough and just going to hunt seriously for at least five more minutes. And I man, it must not have been 60 seconds. And Spencer had looked up and he's like, Brian, there's an animal hundred yards up the fence. I looked up, man. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. Yeah. And I think that something that really aided you in the success of that hunt is that you did something that a lot of people tend to overlook. 
in the fact that when you see a big deer or a group of deer or, or any animal and they're all out in one spot out in an opening you pay more attention to where they are and what they are than where they came from and how they got there and you mm-hmm. paid attention to where these deer were coming from so that you could ambush them yep exactly and it, that's a, that was a hard hunt that i played i you know i moved that tree stand there was a it's a I would say about a 900 yard wide field edge that that specific one is. And then there's about another 800 yard one that runs kind of in an L shape. And so there's a lot of area for the, you know, those whitetails to come out of. So when you're trying to pinpoint them down to specific corners or coves or fence lines or, you know, gate openings or whatever it may be, a hole in the fence where a tree fell on it, wherever they, they focus their, their, you know, their travel movements, it's hard. I hunted many nights in different areas on that field, different, you know, tree stand setups. And it was six nights in a row that I hunted to get that buck out of that same tree. Then it was hard because I didn't have a camera guy. Um, I'm guilty of not being able to videotape everything just like everybody else is. If I would have had a camera with me every night, it would have been a different story than that one night. We had great movement all night, but I sat there many, many nights before that where I seen nothing. Yeah. And even if you did have something come out and you're trying to self film that hunt that we have on Slager outdoors of you and Spencer in Alabama, Spencer proves how difficult it is to self film yourself with a bow. And even if it is right inside of 30 yards. Yeah, it's extremely hard if they do not give you ample time. Now, look, if you're sitting over a nice, you know, candy corn bait or, you know, you're in Saskatchewan sitting over a lush green alfalfa square bale, it's different because if the buck stops for you, you have all day to press record. Okay, I'm on them. Range, draw your bow, shoot Let the them deer. settle down. Exactly. You you can get away with that luxury. You can't do that in Alberta. You couldn't do it in Alabama the way we were hunting. You can't bait in Alabama. We we didn't hunt over baits. No, you didn't. Even in Alberta, you're we're primarily setting up on uh, trails, uh, maybe a big wide open food source. Uh, we very rarely hunt off of bedding areas or between bedding areas. Uh, that's something I think we found more success doing in the rifle seasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, but with a bow, it's, it's largely figuring out where these deer are traveling in their rut, pre-rut and feeding cycles. And, and we try to figure out a way to set up a stand that works best for that. My favorite time to hunt white-tailed deer with a bow is that first week to first two weeks of season. When you can get them, get them in that summer feeding pattern, they are by far, you will get six, seven, eight-year-old bucks, man, more vulnerable in that first week of bow season than you will in the entire rut. And I think you can also um, kind of attribute that to uh, if they're in velvet, because it seems like when a buck's in velvet, they're just nutrition, nutrition, nutrition. And then as soon as they strip their velvet, they're like, okay, shelter and hide. Mm-hmm. And then the next opportunity you get, so you go from that early season and then you move up into that pre-rut. And in Alberta, when you got daylight hours dwindling so fast, that pre-rut is such a hard window to hit. Last year, I would say it was anywhere between like October 17th to 25th. Because I shot one on the 19th. I seen pre-rut movement for a few days before that. Spencer shot one on the 25th doing pre-rut activity as well. And it was one of those infamous trickle ruts. And it was very difficult to pinpoint movement. Yeah, if... I didn't get that buck on October 19th. I highly doubt I would have ever got a chance at a buck with my bow after that. Yeah. Now, um, 
you were saying first couple of weeks of season, we have one spot that you set up a tree stand and I don't remember why you set one up there. I think it was maybe just, just to see how it went. And uh, you and I have killed three bucks in three consecutive years in that stand. Uh, the year prior of last would have been the last time that we shot one in there uh, just because mm-hmm. I don't think we even had time to sit there that, that first week of October last year, but yeah, all three of our bucks died within five days of each other. Yeah, it's an incredible spot, man. It's a habitual crossing spot for, for good white kill bucks. They're there every single year. And I'll actually tell you the story of how I actually found that spot. So I was sitting about 300 yards further up. So there's kind of a road, an old dirt kind of private, you know, road allowance, you know, kind of thing where young kids go in Baja, try and get some mud on their tires kind of thing. Yeah. And uh, there's, there's two 80-acre patches of bush on either side. And these deer like to cross it. And there's a field on the one side, on our side that we're hunting. And it kind of goes off the end. You know, it's kind of a, like a slim rectangle there with the bush pattern. And I was hunting about 300 yards further up from the edge. And I was kind of on a creek. And for some reason, I couldn't get on the deer, man. I was hunting all September. I hunted probably 20 days. September 1st to about the 20th. Hunted hard. Couldn't get on deer, man. Maybe a four corn, maybe a doe. But at that time, you know. I wasn't interested in shooting a four corn or a doe because we didn't have doe tags. And one night I get out of my stand because I'm all antsy in my pants and I want to walk up to the field just to see what's in it. Mm-hmm. And I got right to the edge of the field and I had a buck come across on the road right where right where that tree stand goes in. Like we're about 100 yards in off the main road, you know, there, that little main dirt road. Mm-hmm. And that buck crossed perfectly right in front of me and I watched him walk in there and I was like, you know what? just gauging by how these deer are moving i'm like i bet you they're crossing through right there on that trail and sure enough man i put a tree stand up there it was september 28th put that tree stand up on the 27th 100 on the 28th i remember i had a fever i was sick as a dog this is before covid this is before anyone cared if you were even sick Mm -hmm. i was sitting in the tree stand sweating my butt off man and all of a sudden this truck i could hear it you know coming up this dirt road and all of a sudden two white tail bucks come flying into my side I was like, oh man, this is it. They come and you know, you think they're gonna stop in the opening or just before they get to it. Man, they blew clean through that opening like it was standing <laughs> still. They go like 50, 75 yards on the other side. They're standing in the trees, and all of a sudden this coyote puts up. And I let out this like fawn bleat. And that coyote started running. I could hear these coyotes start running towards us, and it spooked those bucks back at me. And I come to full draw and he come running out into the open and I I yelled out. He stopped at 30 yards and I hit him. I hit him a little bit high. It actually knocked him down in his tracks. It was right behind the shoulder. And it, I was fairly high. I like to put my tree stands, you know, in that 24 to like 26 foot range. That's kind of like my favorite sweet spot. But if I can get over 20, that's sufficient. And I don't like going over 30. But I made a good shot. He went down. He got back up, ran 100 yards, and it was over. Got a double lung on him. Um, Spencer came, helped me find him. That was uh, it was an awesome buck. He scored one twenty three. Couldn't have been happier. And uh, before last year, that was your biggest buck with a bow, wasn't it? Yep, that was. And uh, that buck didn't have a lot of mass, but he had really great length. And and just the caliber of story I can tell with that hunt, you know, on that property, it's extremely difficult to kill deer. And the fact that you have killed two in succession after me, it's incredible. So I killed that deer on September twenty eighth. When did you kill your bucks? I killed uh, one, I think it was October 2nd, and the other was October 5th. It's incredible, man. Like one week, that's all it yeah. takes. It's that one week those bucks are just patterned in there. 
Yeah, it was incredible because the first one that I shot in there would have been, uh, was that the year after you killed yours? Yep. Or something like that. And uh, I missed a buck the night before. And this actually dates back to my, I think it's my second podcast where I talked about buck fever. And this was the, the hunt that got me over the hump of, for some reason, I was frozen with a bow. And I missed this buck at 20 yards. And, you know, looking back at it, yeah, absolutely. I should have missed because I wasn't anchored properly. My bow was probably at like a 45 degree angle. Um, coming out of the tree sideways because I was trying to lean around a branch and get a shot off. I don't even know where the arrow went. Never did find it. Even with a mm-hmm. lighted knock, it sunk so deep into the grass that I've, I still haven't found it. And then the next night a buck came out, did the same thing as the buck I missed. And I read the situation differently and didn't wait for him to get too far. Took a, a slightly quartering two shot. And uh, yeah, like you said, didn't run very far, found him. Uh, we even gave him a little bit of time because the blood hadn't started and right where we had left blood when we came back later that was when he started gushing it everywhere I remember when you had made the shot and we had talked about it and we went back in there and believe it or not Spencer seems to be with every one of these recoveries it's it's (laughs) It's hilarious Spencer's just always the man for the job and I remember I seen the little specks of blood where he first hit him and I remember once I seen that first patch of of frothing milky you know red yeah bubbly blood i was like Tyler, yeah. we got this deer we got this deer like it he's gonna be like right here and he yeah. was i remember you were leading way and uh you stopped and you looked back at me and i was like he's right in front of you isn't he and sure mm-hmm. enough that buck was laying there and then uh he wasn't even a big deer i was so proud of that deer i still am i look at that deer and i'm like you know what i accomplished something um for myself by taking this deer it to me is as big as the deer I shot the next year, uh, mm-hmm. just like figuratively, even though the inches are significantly different. Uh, yeah. But yeah, the next year I went in there, sat, I think I sat three times. And yeah. the third night I hadn't even seen a deer. The third night I sat there, I think we saw eight. Isaac was with me and uh, yeah. this, this buck came out and he looked big and mature and I shot him and uh, he went and he died probably in the same, same spot as the other deer. Yeah, as both other bucks, they all come out in the same spot. You hit mm-hmm. them in the same spot, and they all die in the same spot. It's incredible. Yeah, it was pretty awesome. And uh, I think that deer dressed out at like 100, almost 150 pounds at the butcher in the first week of October. That was a really nice buck. And like we said, they don't always get huge antlers in that area. But that was a really mature, really beautiful buck. And he and scored that spot. He scored 132 and change. I think 132 and five eights. So that goes to show you that not every big buck or not every mature buck, I should say, gets to that 160, 180, 200 inch class. It's just not possible all the time. Mm-hmm. Now, and that's, you know, that specific stand, as we're talking about stand placement, there's no big trees in that particular spot. So the tree that I was in there, I, I want to say we're right at about that 20 foot level. I want to say that that tree has gotten safer since we put stand in there because it's starting yep. to get bigger and bigger over the years. It's grown a lot. <laughs> and thank goodness for that. But what I did to take advantage of that low height was that, you know, I had to make sure the wind was perfect. We're predominantly mm-hmm. a West wind. So I wanted to make sure I was as now, far. We get a little bit the... messed up with wind in that spot, but the fact that we go so high helps our wind kind of go over top of the trees. Yeah, if you can get above the tree level, 
and the thermals can can work to your advantage you can lots of times blow your wind above the area that you're hunting and if you can get away with that you can pretty much hunt any wind but in that spot in order to stay hidden at that height I made sure I left a ridiculous amount of branches around us. Mm-hmm. Actually so difficult that it would be really hard to videotape, which we have never actually videotaped the deer out of that stand, No, not yet. which is probably a large reason because I had it so brushed in and it just allows you to get away with that movement, drawing your bow, um, grabbing your bow, whatever it may be looking around when you're low like that, you need ample cover in order to give you that advantage. Well, because the bucks come into that spot and they have no idea what in the world's going on. The does come in and the first thing they do is look straight up your tree. Yeah, exactly. And another good point to touch on is uh, access. Now, when you set up a tree stand or any sort of a stand tripod, whatever you got going on, it's really important that you don't cross where these animals are going to be coming in because they're going to catch your scent and they're going to be like, yeah, no, I'm not going in there today. Or they're mm-hmm. going to do a big loop around and then completely avoid you. Um, that spot works out really well because our access point is up that that old dirt road, mm-hmm. where they're used to being uh, not danger, but the smells that they can associate with danger are always there temporarily, and so On they the come road. out. Yeah, they come out and they're like, "Okay, we just want to get across." So we go up there, cut around the backside and then come into the trail. And that seems to work out really well in our favor because unless a deer comes in on that backside, they have no idea that we're there. Yeah, no, we uh, we seem to be able to fool them with that spot. And it's like sheep hunters, when they have a ram hole, that's a buck hole. Yeah, it seems and to be just, every year. That's one you, you don't give it up, man. Because even last year, I remember we did go in there. I believe it was one day last year. We got close. We got really yeah, we close. Did. We had that really nice buck with the split G3. He came in there that night. And we come close, but we just, no cigar. And if I was shooting like I am now with this new Bantam, I might have tried something that night. But we just, yeah. I don't know. I, I think what we tried to do is we tried to rely on calling him over and he just wasn't interested. And that's that's for a whole nother podcast topic, but sometimes they just don't bite. Um, yeah. Now, when you're looking for a place to set up a stand, what are you looking for? Are you looking for thick vegetation? Are you looking for real thin stuff? Are you looking for trails? I really, I really like to hunt pinch points, spots where the deer would naturally funnel through. And now when I say naturally, I do include stuff like fence lines, open gates, things like that. Anything that makes a deer want to travel through a specific area. So in one particular situation, I was hunting this patch of bush. It's only about 15 acres large. It's surrounded on all four sides by field, all four sides. There's not a specific reason why a deer would want to go into one field to the next, other than maybe he wants wheat this night. Maybe he wants canola or peas the next night, nothing. And there's even alfalfa on one side. So it's literally a smorgasbord. You just have to pick and go down. There's this one spot where this fence line comes up and it kind of tees off to another fence, but pretty much everywhere the deer would have to go, he'd have to jump multiple fences, except for this one spot. Yeah, And so I thought to myself, if I was a deer, this is where I would be. So I sat on them about a mile away on a road with my glass and I was glass in this spot. And I watched three nice bucks come out of that spot. And I was like, well, that seals it for me. I'm going to go in there and put a stand. And the next night I did in that afternoon, sat there that night and I shot a nice buck. You almost didn't. Yeah, it was funny. I, uh, I had this buck coming through and I'm like, man, that looks like a really big buck. And he got under me. He was a nice deer. He scored 100 and I believe it was 116 inches. 
it was a, it's a nice deer. It's a really good deer with your bow, you know. Nice and, four by uh, four. Yeah, really nice, solid four by four. You know, not a lot of length, so that's why he didn't score high. He had good mass and good width, but just not not a high scoring deer. And he come through the trees with this other buck, and I, I grab my bow and I'm like, oh, should I do it? And I thought to myself, you know what? This is a gift horse. This buck is at like 18 yards. He's fully broadside. Doesn't have a clue in the world that I'm even in the bush with him. Mm-hmm. And I just, I come to full draw and I'm like, you know what? I'm taking this deer. And I did. And I, I could not be happier that I did because I hit that deer and it was like six seconds and it was over. He, yeah. he ran out to the field edge, ran back up the fence line into the bush and he was dead all in like 50 yards. It was incredible. Man. Yeah, that's awesome. And it's, it's one of those things where you wish you had a camera because uh, when you don't, that's when the picture perfect scenarios roll out. Um, now, for somebody who doesn't want to shoot too far, because a lot of whitetail hunters, they want to keep everything inside of uh, 40 yards, even 30 yards, which is totally understandable. If you're not comfortable with the shot, don't take it. But Mm -hmm. you find a trail, the deer are frequently crossing, you know, you can get in the bush. Like how far are you setting up off that trail? How far can you get away with being off that trail? The max I will push myself from a trail is generally 30 or 40 yards. But the only case where I will push it longer is if I have a heavy, heavy trail and I feel like there's about a a 90% chance that my deer are going to come out on that trail and there's another trail that's like 70 yards away, I'll put myself 20 yards from the major trail and, and about 50 yards from the secondary trail because that major trail is everything. If you can get that 20 yard money shot, that poker chip shot, that's the one I'm going to take every time. The secondary trail, that's just your fallback. I'm comfortable personally up to 50 yards on a deer. I, you know, depending on how I was shooting at the given time, 60 would be my max. 60 is the max I would take on any deer, mule deer or white. Um, Just given that their body size, the comfort, you know, the kind of groups I can put together on the target, you know, how comfortable I am with my shooting at the time is I'll vary my range 10 yards. Yeah. Now, the other thing that's really important is you don't want to be on top of that trail. No, you don't want to be four or five yards. You don't want to be on a tree where he can smell your tree stand from the trail either. No, exactly. Um, because if you're right on top of the trail, like you said, the scent is a huge thing because you had to get there somehow. The deer is going to come across where you are. And if it's coming from an area you're not expecting, there's a good chance that they're going to catch your scent and blow out before you even get a chance at a shot. Um, and the same thing kind of goes for food you're going to set up on uh, say a field edge where these animals are coming in to eat. Cause this is very popular. Uh, even down in the South, everybody grows their food plots. The deer mm-hmm. are typically going to be as close to the bush as possible as the night goes on and it gets darker. They're more comfortable going out further. Of course. But you also want to factor in, okay, they're kind of in this area. Let's find a, a spot where maybe they got a trail that comes into the field. If you're not going to intercept them on the trail, you might get them once they calm down and start feeding. Yeah. Yeah. That's so like in an area like that, I would set myself up in a nice cove. So if you had like a specific part of a field where you kind of dug into the trees, you get a nice little, like, you know, half moon dish, like a little cove or even a corner, like a corner of a field. Those are dynamite places to be because that's a natural funnel. Deer feel safe. They have lots of cover on multiple sides rather than just coming out of a straight flat field edge. Yeah. Um, and uh, t- this is actually something I want to touch on. 
just to, you know, cause deer are so good at throwing a, a wrench in the plans. When I had that buck come out last year that I shot with my bow, I was hunting a gate. That's where the trail was. They were coming through this open gate and that gate was about 40 yards and where they could come out in the field. If they came out in a 45, it'd be about 30 out of the tree stand. That's why I had my tree stand there. I was just far enough that I didn't think I was going to bug him, but I was still in the wheelhouse for myself. That buck come all the way up the fence line towards it. He only had 10 more yards to get to that gate. What did he do? He jumped the fence. Yep. He didn't even care about that gate. So the very thing that I was hunting, he threw the biggest monkey in the plan. You know what I mean? That, so that just goes to show even as carefully as you can plan, deer can still throw a wrench in your plans and surprise you. And see, that could have been too because you called. And he was on a mission to, to get to what that call was. Now, under the same breath, he might have not even come that direction had you not called. So it's it's mm-hmm. one of those situations where it, it could have worked out, it couldn't have worked out. But luckily for you, the deer just read the script that night. Um, now, another thing, we touched on, on height of tree stands. You like that 20 to 26 range. Uh, a lot of people aren't comfortable getting to that height. But I... I recommend it. I've had so much success sitting in some of your stands as difficult as they can be to get into. Um, Mm -hmm. But that also kind of correlates with uh, stand type. Like a lot of people are going out there, they're getting a ladder stand and these ladder stands are good for like 12 feet, 14 feet. 15 max. Like if you want the big XL, you get 15. Yeah. And, and not only are they not getting you very high, but they're an eyesore. So if you go and set up in a spot, and we're trying to get into the, the habit of setting up as close to sitting as possible. Mm-hmm. If you go into a spot and the deer are coming in there frequently and you put up this giant ladder stand, it's a triple seat or whatever you want to call it, the Hawk Denali, and a deer comes in, not only is he going to see you up in the tree, but he's going to see this monstrosity attached to the tree. And he's going to be like, what in the world is going on in my living room? It's like when little Timmy shows up to the family gathering with a giant pimple on his cheek. Everybody notices. It's that's not a, normal. Everybody sees one. little Timmy's giant red pimple. So that's just the way it is. Yeah. Now we like to use sticks. Um, those three-step ladders that you can individually clip onto the tree uh, and pegs because it gets you that height. They're nice and compact. And, and not only that, they are so much more simple. If your stand needs to be moved on the fly, you're not monkeying around with this gigantic set of ladders and all these they pins so that are loud. banging around. And, yeah. and not only that, like you're trying to haul it is in as few pieces as possible because you don't want to make so many trips. You're banging yeah. and clanging off of everything on the way there. Whereas with pegs and sticks, you just pop them out, unscrew them from the tree. If, if it's allowed where you're hunting, uh, in Alberta, we're allowed to use whatever we want. And mm-hmm. then you can just throw it in your backpack, run down the field edge or the trail or wherever in the world you're hunting and just put it back up quickly. Yep. My favorite thing about sticks. So sticks would be the way to go. If I could do it anyway, any sort sticks, but that's an expensive way to do it. A lot of the times each stick could be really pricey, but a peg. So is the poor man's stick. But in this case, pegs and sticks can go up any type of tree. Sometimes you don't even need a saw. Sometimes you don't even need a straight tree. It can curl and bend and twist whatever direction you want. If you're trying to put like a hard, you know, set of ladders, they need a fairly state, you know, straight stinking tree for you to be able to go up that whole tree without feeling like you're going to fall out and die. 
but uh, you know as long as you can maneuver it you can get it in there exactly you know if you can climb that tree pegs and sticks will get you there now um we've also used a combination so like if you get up to a point in the tree where you're like you know what i need that extra six feet or that extra eight feet and you, you got, got a couple sticks all the way up there. exactly you throw those in there yeah. you get up to your stand you're like i got all the visibility i need now i got that angle that shot line it, it, and it really helps when you're in a tree and you forget a bow hanger and you got an extra peg in your backpack awesome you're just like cotton eye joe man yeah you're just loving it exactly um, now i asked you to think before we did the podcast of poor setups that you've had or or a situation where you're like oh man i really should have did something differently what what did you come up with i got two that come to mind and they're from the exact same hunting season this is when i was starting to get like really big into tree stand hunting and i i didn't know anything about pegs at this point and we had a good friend of ours um tim come up to hunt with us <laughs> he I was hunting for elk, and i was so gung-ho on hunting a deer with my bow out of a tree stand i was so determined to be a real tree a, a bone collector a jury outdoors you know what i mean like have the exactly what i did last year i was so gung-ho trying to do this and of course it took me four or five years to actually get this to that point but he had like six pegs in his backpack yeah and we get up on this this wheat field edge and man we had like 170 inch six by seven coming out in this field and i got like six pegs to go up in this tree with so How i think it was like, the tree man this tree was probably like seven inches in diameter it was not big but i get like 10 feet up in this tree and i'm sitting in this tree stand and the farmer i remember i sat the one night nothing come out like you're so low to the ground man a deer could be walking through the trees at 70 yards if he can catch a glimpse of the field edge he sees this big retard moving around 10 feet off the ground Just a candy cane. In. exactly it's like what in the <laughs> world is going on out here and uh I remember the one night I sat in there and this farmer goes by in a swath here, he's swathing the field. I was pretty much eye level with the farmer <laughs> in his swath your cab. And at that point I was like, you know what? This tree stand is not going to work out. So I moved it to a different spot. And actually this, this tree stand setup was kind of interesting. Me and you had gone in there and I was jumping off of the, the box rail of the truck and jumping onto trees to break shooting lanes. I remember that. And in that particular case, I had like, I think, what was it? Three or four ladder sticks. Mm -hmm. I think 12, 15 feet max is what I got off the ground. And it was the same thing, man. I get right, right to dark and I had this incredible five by five white tail buck come out 150 inches if he was an inch. And he came out in front of me and at 12 feet off the ground, there was no hiding. There was no hiding that I was there. He, he picked me out right away. You know, he busted and, and that was the first chance I could have ever had it had a big mature whitetail and i just couldn't make it happen and especially with deer because deer tend to be the uh the most common animal to look straight up your tree yeah and uh in that case really in both those cases it's the height that came into effect the most the wind direction was good for you know the most of both of them it was just it's the height i have noticed kills you if yeah. you are not high enough off the ground it absolutely kills you yeah, that's, that's where finding your wind is the, the best case scenario for success. If you can find a spot where you got a, a vantage point on a trail or a food source uh, or even water, if you can set it up so that your wind is always in your favor, you're going to, you're in the money every time. And, and then couple that with the height of the tree stand, you get over that certain height 
And if you have a marginal wind, maybe the thermals take and push your wind up higher over top of the animals that are coming in. And that's just a great way to find success using stands. Uh, one other question I got for you, kind of a curveball. Have you seen these um, tree saddles or saddle stands, saddle hunters, whatever? I, you know, I'm actually guilty. I looked on Amazon the other day, Adam, because I thought to myself, that maybe that would be the way to go. But I don't know. I'm, I'm more of a, if I were to go with something like that, I think I would probably go with like a really light lone wolf because I used one in Alabama that the outfitter there had for us and that was the most versatile it didn't have any ratchet straps on it just had a couple straps that hooked up on it you couldn't knock them off you know like most straps where they have the self-tighteners on them yep. you walk down the field edge and you lose one yeah this one it was it was hooked up it was well done and it was so light you could throw it on your backpack it was a special type of material like a composite made no noise didn't tink didn't nothing and so that's probably the direction I would go instead of a tree stand saddle, just because I'm probably biased to tree stands. I don't know how a guy can stand on something that's not even barely as wide as his two feet together and, and then sit on the saddle itself, man. I, I feel like my butt would go numb and I'd lean too far back and, and get in a really hairy situation. And given the adversity of weather that we have in Alberta, I don't think that it's just a practical option, not a negative 30. No, if you're hunting in early September, um, even late September, early October, you can take it in anywhere. It might be excellent. Yeah, those, exactly. those later months, man, that would be absolutely miserable. Mm -hmm. uh, we've been going on for a little while now. I think we'll wrap it up. Uh, I appreciate you taking the time. I know you're extremely busy lately, and it's only going to get busier in the, the coming weeks and, and months here. Uh, yeah but I'm excited to hopefully connect and we'll get to do some hunting together and uh, even see how your success is, uh, I guess, on your own. We're going to try our very best to get everything on camera this year. I know you and I are working on a really special uh, bow hunt here in October. Spencer yeah. might be coming along. We might have uh, another person coming along as a camera guy. Lots of stuff planned uh, for those that are listening. We hope that you got something out of uh, our input on how we like to set up our stands. Any questions, always you can ask us. Uh, you can follow Slager Outdoors at Slager Outdoors on Instagram uh, and Facebook. I think you can find it that way on Facebook as well. Uh, you can follow mm -hmm. the podcast and myself at On The Blood Trail, uh, Instagram, Facebook as well. Follow and subscribe to both YouTube channels for Slag Outdoors on the Blood Trail. That's going to be your best way to get to see how we're doing in our success for the season. And uh, you get to watch all the extra content that we put out there, listen to some of the old podcasts, all the new stuff that's coming out. Fantastic. And uh, yeah, I, I, I don't, did I miss anything? Or uh, is there anything else you wanted to add before we were done? No, uh, if anyone finds success in the field and you guys want to share your story with us, we're more than happy to, uh, to listen and to uh, take in whatever you guys have done right and apply it to what we are doing. Exactly. There's always something that you can learn. If uh, hunters thought they could never learn or do something differently to, to be better, we wouldn't be buying new bows, trying new broadheads, changing up stuff with arrows, trying a new exactly. deer call, elk call. We, we'd love to play and that's uh that's part of what makes hunting so exciting uh, every season is a learning curve exactly so 
but thanks again, Ryan. So excited that uh, we were able to get this put together here with uh, such a, a tight timeline. And uh, thanks to everybody for listening. And we'll see you on the next podcast. Yeah, catch you guys on the next one.